Um, we found today's winner of the next uh, Proto.io full year license. Loading Instagram. The name. Oh, you don't have it? MS, MSY. MSYFAX. Do I have anybody here named that? Not working. Nope. Yeah. There we go. Who's this? You still here? No? You're there! Congratulations. Please come up to me afterwards. I need your email. You won Proto.io for a full year. Thank you. Great picture. Yay! Okay, I can't believe these are our last speakers. I want this to keep going. So um, hopefully I'll see you guys all in six months again when we do the UX 2016. I'm really proud to announce that Ross Smith and Dana Popa are here to do our last presentation of the day. Um, I'll start with presenting Dana. Dana has a broad design background that spans from arts to interior design and design ar architecture. She has lived in Atlanta, Georgia, where uh, MailChimp is actually at, and on Cyprus before becoming master of UX and video game design at ITU here in Copenhagen. Dana is a senior UX designer at one.com and has been there for about a year. And she specializes in gamification and manages to bring a, ga a twist of gamification into her UX method methodologies, which to me sounds like a lot of fun. Dana tells me that she met Ross at a gamification uh, conference once, and they're both really into gamification, but what they really bonded on was um, their, their shared passion of snowboarding and telling each other crazy snowboarding stories. Ross is, among other things, director of engineer at Microsoft, part of the TEDx organizing committee in Seattle, and he's worked with Skype since 2009, focusing on quality assurance, operational efficiency, and cost reduction, and what's most important to me is focus on employee retention and morale. That's going to be really exciting to hear about. Like Dana, Ross is very pa passionate about gamification and aims at improving customer experience by applying technical expertise using productivity games and gamification in the workplace. Ross has found that gaming reduces risks in your company, and especially if you have a hugely diverse population. Again, a huge thank you to our sponsors for flying in, Ross. Thank you for being part of it also, Dana. Um, I'm sad that there are last speakers, but really happy to announce our last speakers of the day, Ross Smith and Dana Popa. Okay, how about with it turned on? Is that better? <laughs> um, so thank you. Uh, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Uh, my name is Ross Smith. I'm, my uh, official role is at Skype is Director of Engineering for Customer Feedback and Data Insights. And just really happy to be here and, and have heard such wonderful speakers over the past couple of days and uh, know that we're the last between the end, you and the end of the, of the conference. So, uh, so hopefully we can keep you awake and keep you interested. And, send you on your way with some interesting thoughts. So 
Um, and I'm Dana. Nice to meet you all. Um, actually, we kind of met uh, throughout the coffee breaks, throughout the lunch break, the dinners. Very nice. Um, thanks for all the learnings for this week. And uh, nevertheless, thank you for the organizers. And I think we should get a round of applause for them. Because it's been... <laughs> It's been seamlessly done, so very, very nice. Thank you. And um, it was, um, yes, <laughs> um, it's very nice to, to be here and learn uh, what you guys have been, uh, been doing and the problems you've been dealing with. And through the last um, two days, we've seen a little bit of a reoccurring pattern. And the reoccurring pattern was, uh, where, um, like, how to connect and how to make uh, bridges. Uh, also, Eric was mentioning how to make bridges between the tech and the design, how to bring the stakeholders in. We heard a lot of this. Well, uh, out of all the designers speaking today, uh, today and yesterday, we have uh, Ross that is <laughs> coming in our team, and um, he's part of the tech side. So. It's just uh, we should take a better look and see who wants to also join and comes on board voluntarily rather than thinking that all the time is a, is a fight. So uh, <laughs> in this regard, we are very lucky. Um, all right. I actually, because you've been a good learning experience, I took some notes of uh, what has been going on for the last two days. And uh, it was very nice to create, uh, to, to listen from Airbnb of how to create a real connection uh, for a real human connection. Uh, for plan day, how to get on board and maybe create uh, your barista schedule starting uh, January 1st, 2016. Go for it. <laughs> Uh, for Volvo, uh, it hasn't been, uh, it's not, it's not going to be anymore a bad thing to have your hands full uh, while driving because uh, uh, you have to just trust, drive me, it's going to take care of it entirely uh, while avoiding confusion mode. And um, possible, uh, Peng will uh, keep you calm. Uh, while you are enjoying the flow, the flow of a conference. <laughs> um, for uh, uh, Nikki was telling us uh, with drive, driver that no interface is the best interface. So that's something maybe to think about. Um, and also David with uh, BBC creating standards in uh, which would be the fantastic uh, catalog for innovators. Uh, and he calls it gel. Um, and also Spotify. Not sure if it's still here. Uh, but uh, thank you, Stanley. It was my, my favorite talk. But, uh, of course, I'm being uh, biased here. Uh, because you have to be really patient about three years to get awareness around design, around your organization, and uh, learn about it. And many, many more. Um, Danish Design Center um, was um, 
just telling us of how to do design thinking and how to make cross-references from design to business and um, to look also in other sides um, rather than uh, just interfaces. And also, thank you for the workshops today. Great learning. Um, I've been part of the human-to-human -human interaction, and it was very nice. And uh, it was great to see of how to be an app. So after, um, yes, thank you all <laughs> for sharing. That's the best part of it. Um, so what we're going to speak today is actually, if I go back to the title, it's human-centered design in the age of the machine intelligence. So why does it matter and why talk about it? I think everybody has been talking about human-centered uh, uh, design to some extent and how to do it or why to do it. Uh, you call it user-centered design, you call it different names, but I think we are all speaking about human-centered design. And what is happening with the machine intelligence is think about it. Right now we are having our smartwatches and smartphones doing so many um, uh, so many different applications. We are thinking of, like we spoke a lot about today, about January 2016, about 2017 with Volvo. Uh, a little bit maybe farther in 2020, 2020. How about 2030? Think, uh, where, what conference are we going in 2030, in 15 years only? Or are we going to have what, a watch? Are we going to have a phone at that time? So it's, uh, Ross and I were looking pretty much at the same problem. And uh, the problem is how we're going to design while the technology is uh, developing so fast and the machine is becoming more and more intelligent. I'll cover the part that I know, which is the design part, and then I will listen and learn from Ross for the part that he knows best about the machines and the, in the intelligent ones. So, yes, I just wanted to mention one more time, many, many more here. <laughs> what uh, we also seen and what we are doing more and more these days, we are doing informed des design and informed design decisions. And we are relating to big data or little data or uh, we are relating a lot to user research these days and it's starting to be more and more important because uh, we are getting to know more the needs and also the pain points of the users by understanding who they, who they are. And then we can build what, uh, what everybody has, uh, has been pitching for the last today, human-centered design solutions. And the human-centered design solutions, they were, a lot of you said, trust, building trust. With, with the product, with the organization, with the team. It has been another uh, theme that has been occurring quite a lot. But uh, you also mentioned uh, beautiful you, and uh, easy and friendly and so on. So what is that? It's, if we are looking at the Maslow pyramid, we are going higher and higher as long as Wi-Fi is on. <laughs> we can get along with our, uh, with our ap applications or 
whatever we are designing for to, to satisfy more of the social needs, of the esteem needs, and uh, self-actualization needs. So it's becoming more and more human. And some good references, maybe uh, check it from time to time, start, uh, or to start with it, uh, both from IDEO. And then, or start with people. And starting with people, it's doing whatever you can do or whatever you have at hand to get closer to your users. And this is an example what, uh, uh, from a workshop at uh, one.com. What we've done, we didn't have the time or the means to go and talk to the user, to send surveys, to track them, to whatever. So within very fast uh, pace, what we could do is get uh, closer to the user through the customer support. So we invited actually the customer support supervisors that had also a broader understanding per country and uh, uh, per, uh, per different products, what the user would be. And uh, it looks quite uh, similar to the tool that Christian from Design, uh, Design, Danish Design Center was uh, presenting. And I call it business origami, but all it, it does, it uh, brings people co-designing, but people that uh, for us was the way to get closer uh, to user and empathize with them. So finding what would, uh, would be the pain point uh, of our user through the uh, supporters, because they will get actually the complaints mainly. I'm not sure how many good job or you rock. <laughs> Uh, emails they get. And uh, it was a very good discovery tool and we learned uh, quite a lot. And it was uh, much easier to bring everybody on board and empathize with what could be some of the pain points and what could be some of the needs. So you get closer to it. So what the design thinking uh, that everybody is saying it's so important and use it and uh, and why using it for business innovation, for uh, 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 functional innovation? It's, it starts actually with people. You are empathizing with the people you are designing for. You can call them user, you can call them customer, you can call it anything they are, but usually they are people, they are not dogs or cats. I'm not sure if anybody is designing for dogs and cats. We haven't seen uh, any examples, but uh, yes. Look at, the, look at the needs, look at the pain points, maybe also the, desire, the things that they would desire. If uh, can get on the wish list of what people would like, then it's gonna be, gonna come with some uh, really nice and probably crazy ideas. And uh, what we do, we innovate the experience and innovating the experience that includes all the parts so getting on board the business part and if it's viable or not, getting on board the technical part, is it feasible, can it be built? Uh, of course, everything is so feasible these days, but it's gonna take either six months or two years or 10 years. <laughs> it's a matter of uh, maybe what increments are feasible now and what are gonna be later. But uh, if we are starting with the people first, and looking at what is, what is the need, then yes, we, we can build on, on top of it. 
And then you also have seen it quite a lot. <laughs> uh, this one, and you probably try it, and you try it all the time. Uh, prototype, and that doesn't mean with any particular tool. With any tool, uh, you feel most comfortable. Uh, learn from it and iterate on that. And learning can be testing with whoever, you know. And everybody has been mentioning this. So I think it's already common knowledge for, for all of you. So yeah, until they, uh, the first people that uh, had, uh, had a flight, the, the Wright brothers, they, they, I think they had some falls. So it's fine, <laughs> real falls. Um, again, um, exploring the possible um, a solution and then make the choices. I think you're gonna get to a, a choice that has gone through also the edge cases, not just through the sunshine scenario. So the more you diverge at the beginning and understand maybe the different angles of the, of the problem you are solving, then whenever you are making your choice, you, you are gonna make the choice that is also probably hopefully and most probably will cover all the, um, all the edge cases as well. And uh, with the design thinking, all of this is the design thinking method that anybody can jump on board, what, how to do it. And how to do it is through a language. And a language can be, it's usually the, the one that everybody knows, no matter the field, is the pen and paper. The pen and paper can be in a little playful way, or it can be in uh, sticky notes, as long as you are getting your idea down and you structure it, you group it, you, yeah, go at it. Then for, for the other designers, uh, for, for the designers that are specialized within the field, of course we have to show it in a visual way to, to gain the trust and gain the professional trust needed from, from the other disciplines. And um, after really thinking through the flows and after really thinking through the problem, then when you come to a beautiful design that also answers all the interaction and all the flows uh, that a product manager may ask, that a, a technical person may ask, that a stakeholder may ask, and you can answer all those, then you're gaining the, the respect. And uh, this was actually uh, a good, uh, good example that went through all the way uh, in my organization, which was very, very nice. And then uh, if you can test or in any way, we already talked about iteration. Um, uh, I did some guerrilla user testing. And again, what if you don't have the means or tools of uh, testing or capturing a lot of data about your user, what can you, what can you have, uh, what do you have at hand? You have the people in your organization, otherwise you have your mother, you have your grandmother. Probably if you're testing with your grandmother and she gets through the flow, then anybody will be able to get through that flow. So uh, use whatever you have at hand, but it's nice to have somebody else looking it through with, from a different perspective and also from outside of the project. We are not designing for ourselves and we are designing for, for the people. As we are starting with the people, we should keep them in mind throughout our, throughout our process 
persona or not persona, but we should remember that we are not designing for, for ourselves. Of course, and then work on it. <laughs> it's good not to get attached. So there is a, oh, the pixel is not uh, really correct. The alignment is not really correct here. <laughs> As a designer, I don't know how that slipped, but uh, I will iterate on that next time. Uh, but the most important is to understand and frame the problem, then explore the solutions and then uh, develop. And that can be in cycles of, I think you mentioned, Eric, five weeks, or it can be, yes, <laughs> was it? <laughs> or it can be one week, or it can be even a day. It, it all depends whatever suits you all or whatever suits the project intent. And what uh, I will uh, sit back and uh, learn more about it is how to get how to get more of this uh, user data that we are you guys are all talking that you use different uh, software to track the user behavior and you get all kinds of different data uh, from with the help of the machines how to use that and make a meaningful result that you could use then in your design and maybe also the, the, many, the uh, other stakeholder can use you know, technically or business-wise or yes, and so on. And Thank Russ? You. Thank you. And um, I'll talk just a little bit about what our team is doing at Skype sort of relevant to to you folks, um, you know, from an engineering perspective, a lot of us tend to think of design up front, um, but it's, as you know better than, than most, um, it's a continuous process. And so our team, uh, we have a small team at Skype that's focused on customer feedback. We have uh, lots of users of Skype. I think most of you are familiar with the, with the product. For those that might not be, it's an audio video communications tool. Uh, we span multiple platforms, um, all kinds of different user scenarios, and with lots of users, we get lots of feedback. So one of the things that, that struck me uh, when I came was the opportunity to provide data to you folks to help you know, know where the issues are. And it was great to see over the, over the past couple of days how many people brought that up. Um, and so what we do is we take the text feedback that we get across platforms in Skype and we run, uh, we have a bunch of data scientists and I saw early on the Airbnb slide there was data scientists um, to look at, at methods to cluster this together and to look at sentiment analysis and text mining to understand what are all these users saying, what are they telling us, what are they talking about and package that up to the engineering team so that they can address that. And and then feed that back into the product and, and start to um, help designers eliminate any bottlenecks that customers are seeing and that they're telling us about. So, see here? Okay, so um, I put this slide in there thinking, yeah, I'll talk a lot about data and how data can be used to inform design. And pretty much every speaker that's been up here mentioned it in some fashion or another. Again, Airbnb, Driver, Spotify, all these folks use customer data, usage patterns, um, feedback, all these things to inform, uh, inform the design and really put the users or customers or people 
ultimately at the center of the design. And so as we go forward, and Donna mentioned, um, you know, thinking past, so, so 2017 sounds like a pretty impressive, wow, machines are here, right? That the autonomous car from Volvo is, is something that um, is pretty cool, right? And, and somebody mentioned being freaked out that, yeah, that, that's uh, um, very interesting. So when we think about these machines, you know, whether it's the, the uh, phone in our pocket, the laptop, you know, the watch, um, they're getting more and more intelligent. And the, the algorithms that we use to learn are getting better and better. And so you think of how basically that's made our lives easier, friction-free, you know, um, it's really having an impact and it's speeding up, right? And there's a uh, Gordon Moore who founded Intel came up with a, in the 1960s, Moore, what became known as Moore's Law, which says the, the cost and power of chips uh, transistors will double every year. And he later modified it to every two years. But if you think about, um, you know, the 1950s mainframe was probably, you know, significantly less powerful than the cell phone I have, right? And so the, the shrinking and the cost. And so for those of you, uh, people seen the movie Her? Okay, most. Um, but this is, uh, you know, it's fiction for now, right? But um, uh, going back, um, 1842, uh, Ada Lovelace worked with Charles Babbage on what they called the analytical engine. And uh, it was essentially the first computer. It was a big contraption. I should put a picture up. Big contraption that was a calculating machine. And she was, um, she was very insightful. She said that uh, she predicted at that time that machines would play music. Right, so you think of um, digital music today, that was true, right? But she also made some comments that machines would never be able to create. They could always copy, and they could do what humans told them to do, but they would never be able to create anything original. And so about 100 years later, Alan Turing, um, anybody familiar with the Turing test? A couple folks, uh, pretty many, yeah. So um, basically, he proposed a test to, as, as machines, and he worked on early mainframes, as machines were becoming more prevalent, there was a fear, a concern, that they would become more powerful than humans. And so he developed this, what became known as the Turing test, which would be that an independent um, human would, n would not be able to tell, say, behind a wall or on a phone or something, that whether they were talking to a machine or a human. And then that machine would be known as passing the Turing test. And you could argue, there's debates, but it hasn't been done yet. You could probably make a case for some things. But um, Nick Bostrom, who's a, a professor at University of Oxford in the UK, wrote this book called Superintelligence. And as part of this, uh, he did a survey of sort of the artificial intelligence experts. Um, this, is, this came out earlier this year. Uh, who and, and asked them to predict when machine intelligence would equal human intelligence, and then when, uh, when machines would be more intelligent than humans. And so the experts, the consensus ranged somewhere between 15 and, say, 30, 40 years from now that we would reach uh, human-level machine intelligence. And then metaphorically, like the next day, um, they'd be more, more intelligent. But um, within, say, realistically, within five, 10 years past that, machines will be more intelligent than humans, will pass the Turing test. And so the 
thing that I'd like to send people thinking about is, okay, so the importance of human-centered design, right, as we come to this machine age. Um, so you think about the work of travel agents, right? How many, can anybody, does anybody know a travel agent that's still around? Right. And so then you think about um, sort of this, as machines become more and more powerful, they start to take over more and more things. And these folks have all warned about the uh, sort of the risks associated with um, not keeping artificial intelligence under human control. So Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Ray Kurzweil, and Stephen Hawking. And Don and I had the pleasure of meeting Steve Mann over there, who's the, uh, sort of the first human cyborg. Uh, he's a professor at University of Toronto and started doing wearables and, and uh, things like that in the 1970s at MIT. Really interesting guy if you want to look him up. But the, but the sort of the, the challenge here is that, you know, the skills gap in, for employers is growing wider and wider. It's harder and harder to find whether it's software engineers, designers, just talented people to fill the growing demand for talented workers. And so... You know, if you, if, as a company, a choice between, hey, let's write a, write a program, let's have the computer, let's have the mobile phone, let's have the user do these things for us. And so this, this was very interesting. I'm not sure you can read. I'll read a few of these off. But these are jobs that are predicted to be replaced by machines in the, in the next 10, 20 years. Um, but I'll, I'll, I get, I'll give a an easy example. So if you take the autonomous car that we hear is coming in just a couple of years and Mercedes is doing uh, autonomous trucks, I'm sure Volvo is looking at that too, is the same technology. And uh, how many truck drivers there are in the U.S. and mainland Europe, um, that's a huge industry for employment. Now, if we have successful autonomous trucks, where, what happens to all those jobs? So other jobs here like bank teller, is already, you know, there's several banks where you pay extra to talk to a human. Um, and, uh, you know, data entry, travel agents up there, mail carrier, dental technician, real estate broker. A lot of these things are already, you know, shrinking, if not gone, already, gone completely. Um, and then you think about robots. And as we, as, a, as humans, get more comfortable with robots, a robot babysitter, right? It sounds kind of appalling today, right? But... 10, 20 years from now, people might be accustomed to that, right? So, um, so I wanted to walk through and kind of to touch back on Ada Lovelace to, to see, um, you know, can machines really create something original? And what is, what is sort of, is there work going on there? So uh, Chef Watson is a, uh, is a project from IBM. And what they've done is they've done a chemical analysis of various ingredients of food and put them all into a big database, matched them up, paired them, and clustered together, and started to create, allow you to create interesting dishes, interesting um, food from similar tasting ingredients. So, and, and I don't have some great examples, but basically if it says, okay, add flour and sugar and water and do this in a cake, and they've done the chemical analysis and say, okay, um, I don't know, I'll pick carrots or something. So, you know, has a uh, similar makeup to some of the other ingredients. It allows you to mix and match and do these crazy creations. So you could argue, okay, that's not really original because it's this big bank of data. But if you didn't know that big bank of data existed, it seems original, right? And going quickly here, this is an interesting study. So they, uh, it's a couple of students, um, PhD work. 
they took uh, about 500 uh, photographs from the streets of New York City in 2014 and 2015, and then about four or 5,000 photographs from, the, from Fashion Week in New York in 2014 and 2015, and started to do the matching to see you know, what, what was the trend, what was the style changes, that, and where did they come from? And some interesting look at you know, pe what people are wearing on the top, what they're wearing on the bottom, on their arms, on their heads, um, and really be able to match back uh, what fashions were trending. And then very similarly, these, these folks took, uh, there's a, a couple um, fashion blogs that uh, they took postings from that where people posted pictures of clothes that they like. And then it allowed you to put in uh, a photo of yourself and it would recommend a fashion based on the existing uh, machine learning algorithms from the blogger photos and then map those by region of the country and allowed you to kind of self-select so you would fit in in whatever region you were in. So again, you, you, could, you can't really say it's original because it's got this big bank of data, but again, it's, it's getting closer. So the point is, you know, the, the, the thing that got me thinking in the whole design matters, right, is like, is designer on that list of jobs to be replaced, right? And, and so then you say, okay, well, what about composing music? Um, and this is a fascinating study. These, uh, I have references to all this that be in the slides if you want to um, look up the papers and stuff. But this was an interesting study where uh, it's a student from Yale had, um, had uh, gathered a bunch of um, uh, J.S. Bach pieces as well as some jazz pieces and put them all in a big database, analyzed them, did a whole bunch of uh, machine learning algorithms, and then created original music and then played it back to... Um, to not experts but enthusiasts and asked, played it along with some other Bach pieces and asked them to identify which were real, uh, which were original Bach pieces. And she had, a, I believe, about an 80%, um, call it success rate, of uh, people who identified the computer-generated music as being written by Bach. All right, so again, is it original? Don't know. So the point sort of in closing here is that, like, these machines are going to get more and more intelligent. There's more and more data. Users are clicking, they're liking, they're sharing. So we have a lot to understand the sentiment and what people are feeling. But it's still going to take, my belief, a human to be the outlier because the, the machines are going to be more and more efficient, more and more focused on you know, the, the happy path or the sunny day scenario and making things beautiful. But if, you know, just my favorite example up here is Salvador Dali up at the top. Like, I don't think a machine could ever come up with that, right, <laughs> his paintings. Um, but a lot of these things, if you think of, at, you know, in their time, they were completely unique. And so uh, as, we, um, as we think forward, um, sort of human-centeredness is, is important. Like, we live in... in probably one of the most magical times in human history, right? That the, the skills and the capabilities and the, and the things that machine assistance unlocks for us is, is just phenomenal, right? And yet this room and, and folks like you are the ones between the machine and the human. And so it's, it's really important to, to be empathetic, to really focus in and zoom in on what is the human experience. How do we, how do we have the machine support us instead of, you know, us supporting the machines, <laughs> which if, if things spin out of control is, is a real risk. And so 
I think, to, you know, I, again, I come from the engineering side, but I think it starts with the design and, and really thinking about the people and how do we unlock human experiences with the assistance of machine intelligence and, and artificial intelligence, data mining, all the great examples we heard the past couple of days of how to use data to improve the user experience. And so I just wanted to um, hopefully send you off thinking and, and uh, realizing the importance of keeping the user or the human or the person at the center. And, um, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. And we did Russ. want to say design matters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. And I'm glad you ended up saying that we couldn't be replaced, all the designers. Thank you, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really anxious there. I was like, no, 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 no. But then again, any questions about um, Skype, one.com, intelligent machines taking over the world? <laughs> Pretty broad spectrum. So do you have, a, I'm just going to start because that's my job. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, at Microsoft, mm. at Skype, do you have any example of where you work with, a, I'm thinking Skype product, because everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Are you working with intelligent uh, machine, I mean, artificial intelligence in the Skype product? Um, in a sense, we do, we do a lot, as I mentioned, the text analysis for feedback. Uh, also, We've done a, there's been a large project in conjunction with Microsoft Research on language translation. So the Skype translator does real-to-real, real-time, person-to-person uh, um, -person translation between multiple languages. Um, and that's all big based on sort of training data and running through machine learning so that, um, you know, it can do the translation. And you may have seen uh, Bing Translator. Google Translator, those types of things, and then building on that to do voice recognition and voice synthesis so that we can get real-time communication. And is, that is that something we're going to see in the product? Yes. It's actually, you can do and download a preview now. Oh, you can? Yes, oh, okay. uh, since last December. So. Excellent. Yeah. I will definitely do that. Yeah. We've got a very tired audience. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully tired and satisfied. Let's, uh, you know what? It's time. From, from uh, our program is, is over now, so just to make you know be nice to you, let you go at, on time. So Ross and Dana will stick around for the next 15 minutes, I hope, yep. and you can pick, you can find them in the crowd. And please yes. don't leave yet. I still have something to say. Thank you. So guys. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Present for you. Thank you. And I will just add our contact info is in the slides, so please reach out if you have questions later. Great. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. I can't believe it's over. That's too bad. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dana, for rounding up the whole day. Now we can just pretty much leave. <laughs> A special thanks to all the international guests for coming. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Spread the word. Um, on your way out, we have the MailChimp competition. Vicky will be waiting out there. She's waving already. She's ready to hand out the, the winning merchandise from MailChimp. Um, we'll be sending out an email tomorrow with links to this, the available presentations and also to our survey. And please, UXers, send us your comments. Anything especially negative so that we can do it better next year. We're back in March 2016 on the 3rd and 4th of March. And also, we're doing Design Matters again next September, so please stay tuned. Come on over. 
Um, according to user needs, we've been told that we need drinks tonight. Unfortunately, we don't have that arranged. They're closing. So next year, we'll listen to you guys. We'll have beers ready for you next year. <laughs> there, there's a bar down the street called Tolbo. We're going. We're going. See you there. Down the street. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's good. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for making this an absolutely fantastic conference. And we hope you had as much fun as we did. See you next year, hopefully. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent.